Hello and welcome to Adventures in Venueland, an EAMC podcast. This is your all-access pass to go backstage and behind the scenes with some of the brightest minds that cross the scope of the live entertainment industry. I'm Dave Rettelberger. And I'm Paul Hooper. We'll introduce you to some of our favorite people as we dive deep into the world of live touring shows and the venues that host them. Our adventure today takes us to Chicagoland, where we're talking with ESPN Hoops analyst reporter. Oh, let me make sure I get this right. Weiss like ice, broad like road. Weiss bro, did I get it? Dude, you got that. That was perfect on the first try. You've, you've said that a few office. times before, right? Weiss broad, Weiss like ice, broad like road. That's even on your, your Insta. Yeah, I try. I just try to give people a guide because it's for some reason it's a very difficult German name. Um, I mean, I don't think it's difficult, but it rarely gets pronounced correctly. So Dave, you, you slayed first time out. Good job. As a guy with a long German name, uh, I can appreciate that. So, <laughs> well, Brooke, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us. Uh, they're working for ESPN the last 18 months. Uh, you know, the pandemic had to have been crazy. So talk to us about, you know, kind of where you're at right now and, you know, what the last, you know, year and a half, two years have been like for you. Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, gosh, all over the place emotionally, I would say, you know, just looking at things from a bigger scale, um, you know, I think all all of us have, have been that way. Um, Just trying to check in on each other and with, you know, with everything, everything socially outside of COVID, I mean, you just combine all things together. And and I think, you know, it's been really important to try to bond with people that are aligned in the same values as, as I am and in the same morals. And that's been, you know, that's been a saving grace because there's been, unfortunately, like a lot of people who I never thought I'd have to, you know, give the boot out of my life. I've I've had to do that. Um, And that's, you know, that, that part sucks too. Um, But the great part is, is really finding people that, like I said, like you align with and that who really have your back and that you can, you know, be on a FaceTime for a couple hours with, if you, you know, if you can't see them personally. And it's also challenged me a lot creatively to find other ways to, um, to entertain myself or to help out with other people, um, you know, just even create more, um, more basketball camps and things, um, you know, for kids. Cause I, I felt a lot for kids who weren't going to school and weren't being able, couldn't see their friends, couldn't be inside a basketball gym and have activities. So I really got inspiration from watching other people, you know, come up with different ways of, of getting around being socially distant from each other. Um, and that helped a lot, but yeah, there was some, you know, there's a lot of moments where you're just like, I I don't, I don't feel like myself. I'm not myself. I hate this. When are we going to get back to being around people? I mean, I'm a huge extrovert. So the thought of being isolated is really scary. Um, (laughs) Yeah. Right. And so, you know, and, and then that sometimes like my dog became even more of my best friend. Like he's hanging out here right by my feet right now. I moved to the suburbs, spent a lot of time outside. You're a burbs person now. Yeah. I'm, I'm embracing it. I'm getting there. <laughs> I still go to the city a lot, especially to eat, but having the space to have a studio, you know, in my guest room here. So I could call games and walking my dog outside, you know, with, with no leash and, you know, honestly, like not being on guard 
when I lived in the city, when you leave the house, you're on guard, period. Because there's anything and everything can happen. So not having to feel like that has been kind of nice. Sure. And you mentioned calling games from your place, which I'm assuming that's what you've still been doing. Mm-hmm. What is that like? You know, I'm sure oh, yeah. it's really a very different, obviously, atmosphere. You're not there like hearing the fans, you know, reach out at you at, you know, Duke or North Carolina or something, you know, like it's it's probably you miss a lot of that. Uh, I bet it's also interesting having your, you know, other commentator there who's also working remotely. And, you know, how have you all been able to work through that, that adjustment? Well, I give our IT department at ESPN so much credit because for each one of us, and I mean, how many hundreds of announcers are there? They sent us all this equipment, this, you know, at-home stuff. Like, you know, I got, I got my headsets right here and I have a huge monitor here. You see my backdrop. They spent four hours setting this equipment up with me. So if they did that with me, and I mean, I'm, I'm not, I don't feel like I'm tech savvy, but I'm not an idiot either. So I can only imagine, (laughs) you know, doing that with all of us and the patience that took, there was a lot that went into it. And, um, you know, for me, the fun part was like figuring out like, Oh, what's my backdrop going to look like, you know, and technically you can do it. It's not, easy to do it. I'm looking off a zoom screen. So while people at home are watching television, we're watching zoom and you know, zoom's not always like clear. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Right. So sometimes you, you gotta, you gotta finesse a little bit. You gotta like use your imagination and thank God for me. Like I just react. I'm not the play by play person. So they really have to be on stuff. Um, So technically you can do it and it is great to set my headsets down go downstairs and have dinner. I'm not chasing after a plane. I'm not, you know, getting delayed, getting home at an ungodly hour, turning around, doing it again. So those are great things. I don't mind those at all. Um, Obviously being in an arena is unmatched with the amount of energy that's there. So we, we have like fake natural sounds. So fake crowd. So I like blare that in my ear. So it sounds (laughs) like I can create that energy. Yeah. Yeah. No. So it's like you fake it till you make it a little bit. And you also, um, like when I'm in a studio, it's silent. So you have to create your own energy in a studio. And, and that's how I try to think of it. Because I'm like, you know, there's still people at home that want to be entertained. And I, I want to entertain them. I want as much as I can. Um, so I'll try that. And, you know, the other part I'll say that's not great is I didn't realize how much traveling kept me in shape. So there was that part. <laughs> I'm like, oh, Okay. <laughs> Looks like I got to get on the treadmill a little bit more. Okay. All <laughs> That's right. All of us. Yep. 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 <laughs> so, you know, you're, you're there at, you know, you're, you're doing the, the game at home, but you know, and, and obviously, you know, I think to the average viewer, there's no real difference. How long do you see that continuing? Do you see, you know, obviously there's a, there's a cost savings, there's an efficiency to doing it from home, which do you prefer? And, and what do you think is the, is the future? I think for now it's going to be some of both. Because you, I mean, you mentioned it, Dave, like there, yeah, obviously there's cost savings because we're not traveling and staying in hotels and um, renting cars and flying and all those things. And um, because they've already made the investment to give us the equipment. I mean, if I was ESPN, I'd do the exact same thing. Um, and, And also they also value, they value connection, they value relationships and they want us to see teams in person. So it's not a you know, they're not just like ruling with a siren fist, like, well, we're going to cut costs and save now. Like they, you know, they get it. I think you'll see a little bit of both. I just got my first assignment. My first game is November 21st. That will be from home. 
And then last night I got a heads up that I might hopefully praying be going to Hawaii over Christmas for the diamond head classic. So I definitely nice. don't wow. want to do, do that here. <laughs> like, yeah, don't want to do that remote. No, no, no. I, mean, I need to, you know, there's a need to be there to really Ooh. capture the feeling. Right. I'm saying yes. <laughs> yes. Um, for the future, I think you're going to see, you're going to see everything, you know, it depends on how much people have willing and, and are willing to invest because it costs to put people in the arenas. Um, but you definitely, to me, you get the value back when, when, whenever we're there, it's a different product. Well, and I think you all probably realize this and ESPN and everyone understand that you're basically the eyes of the viewer. And so there is that special thing that no matter how much they're showing you on a Zoom screen, when a ball goes out of bounds and you as the you know announcer are able to lean up and say, you know, I saw him touch it, you know, da, da, you know, it's almost like you're you're that person that's sitting in the stands that can react live with your eyes. So there is a little bit of that missing. So like like you said, I think you know, ESPN and you realize that despite any cost savings, there's something that's sort of irreplaceable from being able to be there in the moment and obviously interview coaches and teammates live. Yeah. I think that that's a great point, Paul. And what I look for when I'm, when I'm in an arena, a lot of times, especially when there's not action, um, I look at body language and I look at chemistry and I'll see something like I love when a coach is, you know, about to get heated and they're going into a timeout. Like I'm, you know, I'm creeping. I'm looking to see what's going on over there. Or if, you know, people from opposite teams are starting to chat a little bit, like I'll see something that happens in the beginning. So maybe by, you know, the middle toward the end of the game, then something really blows up and I can reference back to something I observed earlier. So I'm a huge, sure. I'm a huge chemistry body language person. Um, I, I, call the games a lot of times off of intuition and things that I feel that are about to happen. And you can't feel watching zoom. That doesn't happen. Right. That's like, you know, it's like virtual concerts, right? I mean, they're enjoyable. I love to watch, you know, but it is very different. They're the emotion of, of being on site. Uh, you know, the, there's nothing like live, right? That's what it comes back to. Totally. But, uh, yeah. So you talked about being in an arena. So Tell me, you know, let's, let's go back to the days when you were traveling around, you know, from, from arena to arena. What is that like? I mean, because, you know, you've obviously probably got some favorites that you've been over the years and some places that not, not quite your favorites. What's, what makes a great arena for you? What makes uh, a not so great experience for you? The, the best arenas have loud fans, period. I mean, this, when the students show up um, and, and people are into the game, that's what makes the difference to me. I love having students behind me. I think it's the greatest thing ever. Um, Auburn has that. Pitt has that. You know, obviously um, being at Duke is an experience all in its own. Um, Duke, I literally had people's knees in my back. Like there's no room. There's just no room in there. But <laughs> you kind of feel like you're going to church at the same time that you're yeah. in basketball. So it's like that's a, that's a really cool, um, different kind of experience. Um, and I think also um, when arenas have DJs, when they have in arena entertainment to keep fans engaged, when the cheerleading team is good, when the dance team is good, if they have like a 90s night, because there's a lot of things that go on that aren't just the game that that people now expect. And, and that's what creates to me like a really good environment. So, you know, you walk in and, and I love the people that have hired DJs to, to get the party started, like get that vibe right, because it, it is everything like to me, music creates so much. And and also like with the sound effects, you know, if 
if somebody hits a big three and you got like a big booming announcer voice, like that's going to get the crowd hype. So there's all those little pieces that put things together that, that make the game that much better for fans. And have you called, I know you've done a lot of college basketball. Have you done any pro basketball and, and how I'm sure that that atmosphere is very different, right? You obviously have like music playing while it's going. And is that something that you kind of prefer one over the other or what? I mean, you've been to games regardless, but what, what's that dynamic, like sort of the difference between the two? Yeah, I've called WNBA games um, in the past before and, and just this past championship, I got to be more of a fan. Um, so that was awesome. You can't really compare it to me. You can't compare pro to college because professional arenas don't have college students and college students. There's nobody that matches the energy of those guys. So right. I think Joe Burrow said the same thing about playing at LSU. And now like I grew up in Cincinnati, so I can make fun of the Bengals, but like Cincinnati's <laughs> not going to bring it like that, you know, right. okay. very different. No, you're right. Yeah. You can't match that energy. Um, so yeah, I, I think, I mean, I, I would love to call any game. It doesn't matter to me. Um, and certainly would love to call more WNBA games, especially now in Chicago, because they won. I, I think the energy of a college arena is like unmatched. It's really awesome. Well, I, speaking of college, I, uh, I know you uh, spent some time uh, at Coastal Carolina. But before we get there, let's go back even further. Where, where did that initial love of sports come from for you? I grew up in a very athletic family. And on my mom's side, she was one of five and she was like more of the student and cheerleader type. However, her two sisters, my aunts are both Hall of Fame athletes. Um, my uncle uh, was a division one college football player and um, he played at the University of Miami in Ohio and got unfortunately got into a motorcycle accident. So he couldn't play after that. My two older sisters were both pretty good athletes. Um, the one I'm the youngest of three girls, the middle one played in college also at university of Miami, and they were four and nine years older than me. Um, did not take it easy on me whatsoever. Um, so <laughs> I got the benefit of always playing against older, older sisters and older people. It's funny you say that because it, I, I remember, you know, when my kids were in sports, I would say, oh, they've got an older sibling. And I really believe having an older sibling a lot of times raises the, the level of athlete that you are as, as a kid. It is because you're always around older competition and, and it's not like they're going to baby you. I mean, at least my sisters didn't. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we, we like legit like fought, fought with boxing gloves, watched Karate Kid, watched Rocky. So it got pretty <laughs> physical in my house growing up. Um, no excuses. So and then, you know, just watching like Jordan, Bird, Magic, you know, all those guys growing up, loving the Bulls, being obsessed with them. So not only was I in a sports family, I'm, I myself just loved it. Um, and then outside of basketball, I, the first time I saw Andre Agassi, I was like, oh, who's this guy? Like, I love, I love everything he's about. So then I became obsessed with tennis and kind of dropped soccer after that. And then growing up, I played with a ton of guys. Like I always had really good guy friends, best friends in high school. And so it was, a, it was always that. And I think just sports for somebody who had a lot of energy, um, sports was like my saving grace and my outlet and, and the, the piece that my mom needed to get me out of the house and go do something. <laughs> That's so great. And I mean, so I'm sure you just followed that into, you know, high school and obviously into college. And, you know, did you ever have any moments where you were kind of questioning whether you wanted to, you know, pursue it on that collegiate level? Or have you, were you just 
as soon as you started playing, you know, sports like this is me, this is what I'm doing. Yeah, I wanted to, I, I definitely wanted to play in college and I went to two different high schools. The first high school I went to, um, it was more of my mom's choice. And I, I appreciate it because um, it was, it was super diverse. Like it was probably 40, 50% diverse. And I got, I got a huge cultural education out of it. And I'm very grateful for that. However, our sports teams were not very good at all. And I was like, I'm not going to get seen, you know, I want to play in college. Like, what do I do? So I ended up transferring within the same, like it was the greater girls Catholic league. So I transferred just down the street to another school, an all girls school for my senior year. And that helped a bit, but really it was like me and my mom and my high school coach, you know, we made, we made tapes. I recruited coastal Carolina, um, he was like, I don't have any money for basketball. I was like, cool. I play other sports. So then I made a softball tape and sent him the softball tape. And they were like, oh, okay. Like, we'll give you some money and then we'll give you a waiver. So mismatched, made it work together to get out of, out of Ohio and, and get to coastal for, um, for a softball scholarship. And then I had a basketball scholarship after that. So I didn't know, like, I wasn't like, I wasn't heavily recruited. I maybe had a few offers, I just knew I wanted to get out of the Midwest. Um, I was trying to go to Pepperdine. I was trying to go to Miami, <laughs> somewhere right. outside of, of Cincinnati. Uh, I also, Notre Dame was my dream school until I took the SATs and realized like, <laughs> eh, probably not going to be a fit for me. <laughs> yeah, but Coastal was cool. It was, it was as strong socially as it was uh, academically and, and athletic. What is that like going through that process of, or I guess knowing what you went through getting into college and then seeing what these collegiate athletes are doing now, which obviously mixtapes and all that stuff has been around for a while, but it's, it seems like there's so many layers now that I can't, I can't even begin to put myself in those shoes of understanding, you know, you're 16, you're a really talented basketball athlete. You know, you almost have to think about your professional career when you're like 14 or 15 and you know, I'm sure you see that in covering college, you know, what is, you know, do you think some of that is for the better maybe, or some of it's for the worse, or is it just sort of the nature of what it's turned into? Um, some of it is for the better. A lot of the, and it depends on, I think the parents, of course, because I've seen um, players who have a huge following who are still humble. And then I've seen yeah. players who have a huge following and you're just like, you're annoying, you know, um, yeah. where did you come from? So I think number one, it goes back to the parents and how they raise their children and, you know, how they teach them to, you know, still be like normal human beings, even if in this age of social, um, social media, like madness, I don't think you have to have a huge following in order to get to college to play. Um, but you make a good point in looking at it almost like a professional track. So for example, Nike has the EYBL league, which is the elite youth basketball league. And if I would go back in time now, I would do everything in my power to get on one of those teams somehow, even if it meant I got to drive four hours to practice twice a week, like I'm going to do it because going to Nike nationals, which is a huge AAU tournament here, or the peach jam, which is a huge tournament in Augusta, South Carolina, I walked in and Gino is there and Dawn's folks are there and Adia Barnes is there. And you're seeing every single college coach in the stands. 
So even if you're the scrub, if you're the 12th or the 13th player and you get in and you do something, you're going to catch somebody's eye, right? So like it's exposure in that way. I don't necessarily think you have to have like a huge brand or a TikTok following or social media. That's good for, for them, for their NIL. And if, if they're invested in that, and if they get an attorney and get an accountant and do things the right way, but as far as getting seen and getting to college, yeah, like a lot of, a lot of kids are focused on making their mixtapes, but I'm like, cool. Can you box out? Can you move without the ball? Right. You know, can you, can you make a pass? Um, It's easy to cut the like two or three times where you hit this beautiful shot and put it together. But you know, what are you doing in between those plays? Yeah. Yeah, I don't care about your jelly fam finger roll. I don't, you know, I want to, I want to see you play defense and take a charge. Right. So Brooke, you're, you're 21 years old. You are, you know, a three sport athlete, uh, big South conference, rookie player, scholar athlete of the year. Right. So you, you've, you've had some success in college and then a back injury takes you by surprise. I'm guessing. Yeah, it sure did. I, it was like two weeks, three weeks before I was going to Germany to play pro. Um, my family has a lake house in Kentucky. We, uh, went out, um, behind the boat. Like I went to ski water ski. Like I've done since, you know, I was a kid. And I was, I was trying to learn how to do it on one ski to, to slalom. And so that means like, you can either get up on one or you can drop from two and go to one. And I didn't know how to get up on one. So I was like, I'll just drop it and see how that goes. And I ended up falling, which was normal. And, and the next morning I woke up thinking like, oh, my back is sore. So it wasn't, it wasn't anything traumatic. It wasn't like I had to go to the hospital or anything. And over the next few weeks, it kept getting worse. I didn't say anything because I was about to go to Germany and I didn't, I didn't want to say anything. So I went over there and it would get so bad that I would play and I'd be fine. But then if like, I'm sitting here, like I'm talking to you guys like this, and if I would turn the wrong way, it would take my breath away almost to where I would like pass out. It's like, what, what is this? You know, I had busted my ankle a bunch of times, but never had a career ending injury. And, um, Germans are the best because we we are a very direct people. So I finally got <laughs> <laughs> I finally got an X-ray. This was in November, and I had been there since August. And they told me that they looked at the picture and they didn't look at the birth date, and they thought I was seventy. I was like, "Dang, okay, like oh, that's, no. that's gonna make it a wrap for me. I'm all done." And that's a wrap. Yeah. And I had lost my ability to, to really, you know, like jump, like I wanted to, and I couldn't trust myself anymore. And like, that's when, you know, when you're an athlete and you get injured, if you can't trust the body part that you hurt, it's, it's really hard to recover. Um, so that's when, you know, I was like, okay, I'm just, I I have to find out what's really going on. So I finally, um, came back to the States and got an MRI. And that's when I realized I had herniated three discs and I have degenerative disc disease. So uh, when you herniate one, they can fuse it or do something. Two is a little more difficult. And three, the lovely doctor, uh, the one of probably 20 that I saw, the first guy at Northwestern was like, mm, you just kind of have to learn how to live with it. And wanted to smack <laughs> I was so upset. So that journey was, you know, that was a whole shift. But, you know, the, the great part about it obviously was getting into broadcasting as, as a career next and not, I would have beat my body up anyways. I would have been like a 30 year old 
with bad knees, a bad back, you know, old, like never had a quote unquote real job. So I'm, I'm grateful what happened when it did. And the doctor who, who ended up doing my surgeries was the same doctor I found out who saved my best friend's life in high school when she got into a car accident and broke her neck. Wow. So, wow. Yeah. And she's, she's has three kids, like she works out. So he, she's fully recovered. And, and I was like, Oh, you're my guy. You're going to be my right. Guy. You're the one. Yeah. 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 So, you, you know, like, you know, like so many of us in this industry have been, you're all of a sudden faced at, you're at an unexpected crossroads, right? So you're here and you're not sure what the path is, you know, your adventure, which you thought you had figured out is all of a sudden very uncertain. So tell me how you got from this point where you weren't so sure to beginning that career at ESPN. Yes, that was, that was a very weird transitional uh, part of a dark journey that I'm sure when you talk to athletes and they go from playing to my next thing and who am I next, that part sucks. And you really lose out, you lose who you are. You're so used to people engaging you and say, Oh, when's your next game? Or I saw you play, or, you know, you get used to that and you get a little bit lazy in, in then creating like your own friends and, and, and asking people how their days were and what are you up to? So I moved to Chicago. I started with, I, I went back to Cincinnati. I did not like it. I was like working as a really bad waitress and, you know, didn't have things together. I was like, okay, what cities do I want to live in? What are those going to be? And it was going to be Boston, Chicago, San Diego, Atlanta, or New Orleans. I wasn't a New York person. I'm not an LA person. So I started with those five, narrowed it down to Boston, San Diego, or Chicago, Um, came up to Chicago uh, Memorial Day weekend, um, starting on that Thursday. And I thought I wanted to work in advertising because I'm kind of obsessed with commercials. I love the thought of creating commercials. So this is still like old school, 2002. Yeah, it was like 2002. So I'm walking up and down Michigan Avenue in my ugly suit, handing out resumes, walking, you know, putting in like 10 miles basically. And then I got one call back to be an assistant media buyer at a ad agency on Michigan Avenue. So I was like, cool, this sounds great. Little did I know that's nothing but paperwork, stacks and stacks of paperwork because you're buying and selling commercials. And that's the most boring part of advertising. Um, (laughs) But the cool thing is you get free tickets to everything because all the sales reps from uh, WGN and Fox and NBC and those guys are coming in and saying like, hey, buy our spots and we'll give you Cubs tickets or Bulls tickets or whatever. So I took the job, moved up here. I didn't know anybody. I made like no money, but I was always going out for cheap because you got this bar that's having $2 quesadillas and $1 beer nights on Thursdays. So you hit that up before you go to the Cubs game, you know, (laughs) (laughs) you got to plug and play, like you got to make it work. And I also worked with a lot of, um, a lot of people that were about my age. So in Chicago is such an easy place to make friends. Um, So that's how it kind of started. But I also didn't know what was going on with my back still. And I was gaining a ton of weight because I couldn't work out. And I was also eating all the great food that was here in Chicago. So I was like having a great time, but also I was miserable and didn't feel like the corporate life was for me. So I left the advertising job, went into selling media and 
although I thought I was going to be making more money, um, about six months in, my bosses told me I was the worst employee they ever hired. Oh, gee. <laughs> uh. oh, I get it. I probably was because I hated it. They fired me. <laughs> And then uh, I was doing odds and ends jobs for for a little while. And I had called my very first game during that time I was selling radio advertising. And so I knew I knew at that point, I was like, this is really what I want to do. But, you know, I don't have a name. I don't have a national championship. Like nobody knows who I am. And I I wasn't willing to leave Chicago and go to a small market and, and do, you know, the sports rap in, you know, Mississippi or somewhere out West or something just to build my name back up. I was like, no, I like it here. I want to stay. So, um, yeah, I, I found, I got another great a job that I actually did like in scrap metal recycling, which was so random, but it was really fun. So I would do scrap metal recycling Monday through Friday. Then I would get on a plane, you know, Friday night, do a game Saturday, do a game Sunday, either fly back Sunday night or first thing Monday morning, go right back into the office, you know, start cold calling and try to do my thing there and do my thing in broadcasting. And that's kind of how it how it all like started to get on a on a roll, I guess. And did you I mean, you mentioned you were a Bulls fan from when you were a kid. So I'm sure there was just this gravitation to Chicago because of that, too. Just everything that comes with that city and sports and how rich it is there. I was actually, uh, I, I don't, Dave, you weren't, were you at the conference in 2010 in Chicago? I was not. No, it was like, so we had our conference in Chicago in 2010 when they won the Stanley cup and we were there when it happened. And it was, I mean, it was something else like to see that city celebrate the way it did and, you know, have jerseys all over every statue in the city and people flooding the streets. I mean, it was maybe four or 5 AM and I couldn't go to sleep in my hotel. Cause I heard so many car horns and people like literally riding on top of their cars. So, I mean, I think if, if you're wanting to be in any sort of sports field, you know, Chicago has got to be just one of the top on the list. Oh yeah. I remember that night they won. Cause I lived a few blocks just East of the United center. And yeah, the whole neighborhood was outside in the streets, lighting on fireworks. Um, you know, <laughs> people, were, people were wasted. It was, it was hilarious. I was like, I like the city. So now here we are, you know, uh, I don't know, since 2004, that's, that's a lot of years. What's that 17 years or, but it, it, it's quite a run right? With, with ESPN. And you've been calling games and uh, uh, done all kind of high school, professional, you know, uh, uh, college games. But beyond the games, I know that, you know, social justice is a very important thing for you, Brooke. And, you know, and social justice, obviously, the past year and a half uh, has had a huge impact on, you know, the sports and field. And, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on kind of where we're at and, uh, and what you'd like to see happen as we move forward. Yeah, no, I'm glad. And thank you for bringing this up, Dave. Um, yeah, it's it's definitely important, um, I think, hopefully for all of us. And and whoever's in my inner circle, it better be important to you because otherwise you're going to get the boot. Um, yeah. But I think for me, I, I've been inspired by the women in the WNBA, first and foremost. They opened my eyes a lot to to some things that people in sports can do. And, uh, one of my best, um, guy friends who I'm also involved, he's, he's actually my neighbor. And one of the reasons I moved out here. So he, he lives just down the uh, 13 doors down. Um, but he brought up to me a few years ago. Um, he said, you know, what do you think about Colin Kaepernick kneeling? I was like, oh, I definitely agree with him kneeling. You know, I, I see where he's, you know, why he's doing it. 
And at the time I said, I, I don't know if that's exactly the right way to do it, you know, and this is me not having done any of my own research or anything like that, but that was just the first opinion that came off my, off my, off my mind. And he said, you know, I'm going to challenge you to look into that a little more. And I'm really grateful that he did it in that way because he didn't come at me. He said, do your homework. And I was like, okay, you know, what does that mean? So the first thing I did was I just like went back and I, I reread Martin Luther King's entire speech because the part that I was taught, taught in school was not the part that I went back and read. And what I realized was that there's a whole section that talks about the silent white majority and that that is just as dangerous as those folks who are coming out and, and attacking and, and, you know, doing things that are like really harmful to people. And it made me really sick to my stomach. And I was like, okay, gosh, from right then and there, I was like, I don't want to be one of those people. You know, I have such a loud mouth and a loud opinion and other things. And I have way too many friends, you know, who are experiencing racism and deal have dealt with this since the day they were born to not say anything at all. So that, that also shifted my attitude and my mentality. And then of course, living in Chicago, a lot of folks and, and the media have a misperception of what it's like here. We do have issues with violence. Yes. As do other cities. And we do have such an amazing culture here that is often really not shared and not talked about. And so getting out in the streets, marching with people, marching with Black Lives Matter, um, understanding where, where and what that is about, it was so empowering and it was, it was so peaceful. Um, and it felt like, wow, we're really out here to, you know, ask for people's right to live. And that seems so crazy and so basic, but like, you know, we don't even have to worry about that as white people. Like you guys and me, like, I'm not scared if the cops pull me over, you know, I'm, I, I don't even think twice about it, but I've had to really rethink things. If I'm riding in a car with one of my black friends, you know, I have to like check myself because I can't just like pop off or something. If I disagree, you know, with something that, that happens in that circumstance, you know, that's, that is a privilege that, you know, we have to recognize and understand and, and respect and then be able to check when we're in the company of, of folks as well. So that's been a really eye-opening last couple of years and to be right in the mix in it, um, you know, to, to be marching and then sitting down at an intersection with thousands of people for and, and to stay silent for nine minutes, you know, to represent the time that George Floyd um, had his neck kneeled on while there's helicopters flying, you know, a hundred or so feet over us and there's just cops everywhere it, it was, it was intense. Um, but you also felt this really collective power of like power of the people type thing that, you know, when yeah. we're out here, we are a lot more and a lot stronger than those few people who are out here trying to cause a problem. Yeah. I mean, I think you put it so, so wonderfully, I think hopefully something that we've all learned in the last year and a half is that there is a lot of power in each person. And, you know, I think everyone always says, but it's, you know, it's, there's that old adage of if you don't vote, then don't complain. But I think it's so much more than that. It's, it's just really understanding that in your community with your friends, holding them accountable, you know, of course, you know, voting and everything, but there's so much more, there's such an impact that each person can have individually, you know, you touch so many people's lives. And so 
it can be as simple as just correcting someone that you're around or bringing something up and not being afraid to sort of, you know, speak out on it or even speak out and be wrong. You know, I think there's, it's probably much better to speak up and have someone correct you than to maybe not say anything at all and be quiet on an issue and not share your voice. So yeah, it's, is there anything that, I mean, you mentioned the WNBA and there's obviously so many teams that have been, you know, involved in it. Is there anything that you feel like you would like to see more of, you know, maybe on the sports side, you know, I think it, it has become definitely on the professional side. It's kind of a case by case thing where some athletes are much more vocal and other ones are a little more reserved and teams sometimes like the bucks will come out as a whole and other ones, you know, are a little different. Do you think that's going to be something that just kind of continues and it's a case by case thing, or do you feel like there is this big shift? I think there's been a good shift in, and people being more vocal and, and the matters being more spoken about, I would like to see more executives get involved. Um, I think to have the players is one thing, um, but you need to have people in power out speaking against it. And you also need to have, you know, a lot more women and a lot more black women in those positions of power and, and, you know, executive spots. Like, I think that's a big change that we're starting to see. Um, but we need to see more of that. And I mean, ultimately, you know, it's, it's not black people who are causing racism. It's, it's white folks. Right. So we need to hear from more white athletes, more prominent white athletes. Um, and also when, you know, if we're stepping outside of sports, I mean, like I, I grew up in, you know, Catholic school my whole life and, you know, barely heard about, you know, slavery and things like that. You know, my kids are going to know, they're going to know critical race theory. Um, they're going to know exactly what happened. And, um, I think, you know, if we can, if in any way speak and try to keep those kinds of educational programs in school, you know, not to, not to sh shame white people as a whole, like that's not what it's out there to do. It's, it's out there to enlighten, like this is the history of what happened so that we don't allow it to happen again. So, yeah, I think it's really like more on, um, it's more on white people really to speak up. So that's, that's the big part. Brooke, you mentioned, you know, obviously, um, women and and their their power in this industry. I know you were just recently honored by the Chicago chapter of women in sports and events and uh, you know as a, as a woman of inspiration and I thought thought it was really cool one of the things you, you you said there and some of their their social media with you was you know it's never too late to reinvent yourself. And I love that and and you know and become an ally was another piece of that. So talk to me about the importance of being able to to reinvent yourself. Oh it's not comfortable. I know that. Um, I feel like it happens every couple of years. Um, you know, getting into getting into broadcasting is one thing. And then going through the evolutions of, of even like physical appearance, right? Like I've had long hair. Now I have short hair trying to figure out what you're going to wear on the air. Like those are outward physical manifestations of reinventing yourself, but those all come from the inside of, you know, how do I feel about myself? Do I, do I stand for the things that I feel good about? Um, and so I think when you start with those kind of things and you look at your circle around you and the things that you're watching and that you're, you're consuming and the places you're going and, and are you trying to learn about other cultures, um, to me, those, those go into reinventing yourself and then finding new hobbies, right? Like, I, I like for me, um, I don't do a lot of work, uh, for ESPN in between April and November, and I don't like sitting still. So then it became like, okay, well, what else, what else can I do? 
Um, so out of that came a nonprofit of uh, creating sports and arts camps for Chicago public school kids. There's another um, friend of mine who's in this industry as well. His name's Cameron Smith. Um, he and I have a program called the Shy Side where we recruit young basketball players and teach them about journalism and sports media. And I'll bring them to Sky Games and, you know, make them do stand-ups and pregame and post-game reports and call the game. That's alongside awesome. It's so fun because they're basketball players. So they get the game. Um, sure. We just started a new, a new class uh, two Sundays ago. So we're, we're getting them ready to interview kids at the Chicago elite classic, which is a high school tournament. So they'll be sitting in the post game interviewing high school players about their game. So um, it's thing, things like that. It's, you know, learning how to make plants out of basketballs and maybe that's a thing or, you know, personal life, like, trying to start a creative family. And like, those are, those are weird things to like research and talk to friends about. And so it's, it doesn't stop, you know, I think reinventing yourself doesn't stop, but I look at somebody like my mom who is about to turn 72 tomorrow and just decided two years ago after like quote unquote retiring from a life of marketing and business that she was bored. So she learned Pilates. Now she's a Pilates instructor. She teaches 10 to 12 classes a week. And I'm like, okay, well, if my mom's 70 doing this, like, what am I doing? Like, I, <laughs> I can't be up here just, you know, sit, sitting down. So she's part of my inspiration too. Happy early birthday to your mom. Uh, <laughs> I also have a birthday on October 27th. So oh, awesome right, birthday Scorpio. buddies. Yeah, let's go. Birthday. <laughs> well, we have lots of stuff to celebrate, and and I love hearing about you know your adventures and the, the reinvention and the, and the the changes. I think you know are something that regardless of whether you're in the live entertainment industry or the sports set of things, that definitely uh, apply to all of us. Before we let you go, I want to hit you with the fast five. It's five quick questions. Just looking for your instant quick response. Up first, what was your very first concert? New Kids on the Block. How about the greatest basketball team of all time? 96, 97 Bulls. Absolutely. Uh, if you could play anybody one-on-one in a game of basketball, anybody, who would you play? Um, I would love to play against Tarazi and get my butt whooped and have her trash talk me while she was doing it. <laughs> oh, man, that's a good choice. Uh, one place you'd love to play basketball that you never got to play at? Oh, um, the, well, I played at Carmichael when we played against Carolina. Um, probably, I mean, gosh, probably at Duke, Cameron Indoor. Last question. What is your theme song? So there's the Brooke show where cameras follow you all around and, and film your life. It's all about you. What is the theme song mm. to your TV show? Mm, gosh, we just had this like walk up moment the other day at this wise event. And I chose um, Janet Jackson Rhythm Nation just because I like the beat, but I mean, people don't know this, but I grew up absolutely obsessed with Tupac. Like I have a huge poster of him downstairs of him, like just flipping you off. Like that was my guy. I remember where I was when he got shot that night that he died. It was awful. Um, so I feel like something with Tupac, um, just cause you know, it's one of my favorite songs. Maybe like, I mean, it's not even like a theme song for me, but just like, how do you want it? That's my guy. Tupac. I, I like that. That's a good choice. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. If people want to follow you on, on social, what's the, what's the best place for them to find you? Yeah. You know, I'm pretty, I'm saying mostly active on Instagram, so you can follow me there. It's uh Brooke with an E dot Weisbrod. Um, and then on Twitter at Brooke Weisbrod. 
Um, I'm still debating whether or not to do a TikTok. Uh, that might pop up here at some point. We'll see. That'll be the next reinvention, right? Yeah, there you go. See, right on it, Paul. You know how that is. It can be all about, uh, for those, you know, obviously people are listening to this and not viewing it, but Dave and I, before we started recording, we're commenting on your backdrop right now. And you've got a basketball that's been carved out to be a plant, like a pot for a plant. So maybe that's your, uh, TikTok vibe. You can do like reinventing. Oh, sports. Yeah. yeah. There's this guy. I don't know if you guys follow him. Um, uh, my Myron labs or my motivated by Myron. I think he's the guy that takes anything and turns it into like a basketball theme. So I've, I've been following him on Insta and, and uh, TikTok as well, but yeah, I, I would love to take credit, you know, for like inventing this, but I can't, um, plant plants and basketball, I think is the account that I got the inspiration from. Um, That's awesome. yeah, I might have to change it up. I might have to like do some sneakers over here or something for, for this year. We'll see. We'll see. We'll see what's next. Well, whatever is next, we uh, will be following along and, and we appreciate you sharing your, your adventure with us today. Uh, Dave and Paul, you guys are great. Congratulations on the podcast. It, you know, going on over a year during COVID, not easy to do. And what's up to the people in India? I mean, that's amazing. It's reaching that far out. I love that, man. <laughs> Yes, we love our we love all our international listeners. And we want to thank everybody for listening to Adventures in Venue Land. Remember, you can subscribe and find more episodes wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. We love your five-star reviews so you can help others find us. Until the next adventure, I'm Dave Rattleberger. And I'm Paul Hooper. Thanks for listening, everyone. Adventures in Venue Land is a side project of the Event and Arena Marketing Conference a nonprofit organization bringing together people in the field of live entertainment to discuss marketing, publicity, and sales trends. Find out more at eventarenamarketing.com. Audio editing and mixing by Camille Faulkner. Design and digital advertising by Megan Ebeck. Copywriting and publicity by Samantha Marker. Guest booking and brand strategies by Paul Hooper. Guest research by Dave Rettelberger. Marketing Strategies by Paul Hooper, Megan Ebeck, and Samantha Marker. Thanks for joining us. Until the next adventure.